Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Some habits start small, but can creep up on you. For Karen, it all started one day on her ride home from work. I used to pull over to a gas station. I would buy like a big bag of Cheeto Puffs and maybe a Diet Coke and like a Snickers bar. Karen is a teacher who lives in Berkeley, California. Now it can take up to two hours for her to commute to the high school where she works. And that's where the junk food came in. And that just kind of got me through the stressful drive and it was clearly stress eating. That's what it was. She kept up this habit for about 15 years. But then Karen got a wake-up call, and she realized she needed to change. My wife had to call 911. They didn't know if it was cardiac arrest. They didn't know what it was. Karen feared the worst. I literally had this moment in a millisecond when I was sitting at the kitchen table where I actually said to myself, January 29th, this is my death day. So I said, okay, listen for the ambulance. And I waited to hear the ambulance. And the sound of the ambulance kind of kept me conscious and focused until the firefighters arrived and saved me. Karen was taken to the emergency room. And here's where things changed a bit in the story. They determined she was experiencing a severe allergic reaction to some sort of medication. Now, even though this was not related to her eating habits, she says that night put a lot of things into focus. But then for the next few days, I was just kind of stunned and in shock by what had happened. You know, it just made me reevaluate my whole life. Karen wanted to feel healthier in her body. So she started paying more attention to what she put in it, particularly on her ride home. I decided to make some changes and learn more about food and teach myself and become more educated about food. And so that's when I started my journey Uh, working with a nutritionist, and things started to shift after that. Now, for one thing, she doesn't stop by that tempting gas station anymore. I drove by that exit the other day. I'm like, oh, that's the exit, because I don't even remember the name of the exit anymore. Like, I used to, you know, know which exit it was. And so, no, the temptation is, is not there. And that's what I was working with my nutritionist with last year. I was like, well, I'm not commuting now. And so, yeah, I now am in the habit of bringing healthy snacks in my car and having them ready for me when I get in my car and go home and uh, eat like just healthy snacks like crackers and hummus and and, um, carrots and nuts and raisins and things like that. And this small habit hasn't just changed Karen's daily drive, it also changed the course of her life. So the result of breaking the bad habit was in the course of 15 months, I ended up losing 70 pounds. It's not about how I look, it's about how I feel, and it just feels less inflammatory, it feels like less stiff, you know, I just feel like there's more movement with my body. I really wanted you to hear this story and also wanted to congratulate Karen for making this change for her own physical and mental health. But looking back at her story, 
one thing that really strikes me is what triggered her habit in the first place. Stress. And that's something I think a lot of us can relate to right now. Our lives have been upended during the pandemic, and our daily routines have changed. Make no mistake, but our habits have changed as well. But here's the good news. Life appears to be returning to some sort of normal, and that makes this the perfect time to revisit our habits. So on today's show, we're going to explore how and why habits form, how to break the bad ones, and how to build new, healthier ones. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and it's time to start chasing life. We all have different ways of coping with stress, and they're not always healthy. Maybe you binge watch your favorite shows. Spend hours scrolling online. Or maybe it's sleeping in a bit too much. It's all very common. A recent survey from the American Psychological Association found many of us struggle to cope in light of the stress brought on by COVID. The APA found during the pandemic, Americans drank more alcohol, had their sleep patterns disrupted, or experienced unwanted weight gain or loss. So trust me, if you've picked up a bad habit lately, you are not alone. There's a lot of people right there with you. But here's the other thing. Not all habits are bad. In fact, most of them help us move through life with a little less effort. So imagine if you got out of bed every morning and you had to relearn how to put on your clothes, how to walk, how to make coffee, how to make your breakfast, how to drive. You know, you'd be exhausted before you got your daughter to school. That's Dr. Judson Brewer. He's a neuroscientist and psychiatrist at Brown University's medical school. And he thinks habits have gotten a bad rap. Most habits are set up in a good way. They help us survive. So it's great that I don't have to relearn how to put my clothes on or how to get my spoon in my mouth, right? So what that does is it frees us up to learn new things. So absolutely, most habits, very helpful. Eating a, you know, an entire pint of ice cream every night, watching television, maybe not so helpful. Here's the problem. We often form habits as a way to deal with stress or anxiety, or even just boredom. These are called maladaptive behaviors, or in simpler terms, bad habits. And these are the habits that can have a very real, very negative impact on our lives. At their worst, they can even turn into addictions. But Dr. Brewer is determined to help more people address their bad habits by looking at them in a new way. In fact, he spent more than two decades studying the connection between addiction, anxiety, habits, and the brain. In that time, his research has challenged our previous understanding of the best way to break habits. And he's even rethinking the way that we define habits in the first place. Well, I love, there's a dictionary definition that I love, so I'm just going to read it to you because it's great. It's, okay. So you say, a settled or regular tendency or practice, and this is my favorite part, especially one that is hard to give up. <laughs> <laughs> So even there, they're implying that there's something negative about the definition of habit. And I'm thinking, come on, guys, why not consult a neuroscientist? It's really helpful to have most of our habits, right? And we don't want to give up knowing how to walk. <laughs> right. Is there a main difference then between a habit and an addiction? Well, I think of my favorite definition of addiction, I think I learned this in residency, was continued use despite adverse consequences, right? So most habits are continued use 
And there are good consequences, right? Because we we walk, we don't trip, we get the food in our mouth, and all those things help us save our energy for learning new things every day. So this continued use despite adverse consequences, still a habit, far end of the spectrum, but even to the point where when we're paying attention, often we feel like we're not in control. Many of my patients, you know, with hardcore addictions, they feel like, you know, they're like, doc, I'm completely out of control. I can't, whether it's smoking or heroin or you know, or even eating, you know, they, they feel like it's completely out of control. So that's where I would differentiate the two is the adverse consequences piece. What is going on from an evolutionary standpoint, from a neuroscientist standpoint, what is going on in the brain then when a habit is forming? You know, and this really highlights this basic learning mechanism. It's really set up to help us lay down what's called context-dependent memory, right? So think of our ancient ancestors who didn't have refrigerators. They basically had to find food and remember where that food was. They also had to see where danger was and avoid that, right? So this is the basis for positive and negative reinforcement. This is basically 95% of our everyday life is built on habit, right? So we can learn things so that we can set the habit and forget about the details. So think of our ancestors. They had to remember where food is. And so their brain would fire off this spritz of dopamine when they found food, a good food source. Dopamine is there to help us remember things. It's like, oh, there's food, right? And then we get that shock of excitement that says, oh, there's food. And then dopamine fires the next day, not in anticipation, you know, not as like, oh, I got some food, but in anticipation saying, go get the food. And it gives us this restless urge to get off the cave floor or whatever, you know, if you think of the analogy, uh, to go get the food, right? (laughs) Right. So that's the main process where it's just from learning to habituation. Simply put, our brains seek out behaviors that make us feel good or that give us the highest reward. That's how we get into what Dr. Brewer calls a habit loop. I think of a habit loop as involving three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward from a neuroscience perspective, but really it's just a result, like what's resulting from that behavior. Here's an example. Let's say you have a habit of eating too much candy. So in this case, the trigger might be hunger, it might be boredom, it could be anxiety. The behavior is eating candy. And the reward? Well, that's the sugar rush or the feeling of satisfaction or calmness. Every time we repeat a behavior, the more we reinforce the habit loop. The higher the reward, the harder it is to break the habit. You got all that. Dr. Brewer says that stress and anxiety can be common triggers for habits. It's a survival mechanism. When we feel bad, our brains do everything they can to fix the problem. That means we may gravitate towards habits like stress eating or scrolling mindlessly on our phones as a quick fix to try and make us feel good. But of course, in the long term, these things don't actually help. So what exactly can we do about it? When it comes to breaking a bad habit long term, the key is really paying attention to how rewarding the behavior is. So if we're trying to quit smoking and we pay attention every time we smoke a cigarette and we really pay attention to what it tastes like, what it smells like, et cetera, we really remember, oh, this isn't so great. And we can recall that the next time we have an urge to smoke a cigarette. We can do the same thing with overeating. You know, what's it really like? How's it feel in my stomach? How how are my emotions after I overeat? And we can really pay attention to see how unrewarding that is. Then we can recall that in the future so that we can really remember before we partake in that behavior. But why are habits so hard to break? Well, Dr. Brewer thinks we've just been going about it in the wrong way. He says we've been focusing too much on self-control 
instead of just following our natural curiosity. For centuries, we've been trying to build up our willpower mentality. And the problem is that our brains don't work that way. Thinking and planning is different than forcing. And forcing feels like we're doing something, but it might not be actually doing something helpful. That's not actually how our brains learn. You know, our brains work through reward-based learning. Like if something's rewarding, we're going to do it again. If it's not rewarding, we're not going to do it. So I actually started asking this question, like, well, what if I had my patients who come in to want to quit smoking, for example, instead of telling them you should stop smoking, right? Because they all know this. <laughs> like, Thanks, doc. Well, that's brilliant. So I should stop smoking. Now you're going to tell me it's bad for my health. Right. No kidding. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, I already know this. So I said, <laughs> well, go ahead and smoke. And they look at me like I'm crazy. You know, I said, but pay attention as you smoke. You know, and they start to realize, oh, these cigarettes taste like crap. We did a study where we had people, we trained them in mindfulness to help them pay attention as they were smoking, had them pay attention as they were you know, working with their cravings. Ready for this? We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You know, it seems crazy. It's like, well, how does paying attention help people quit smoking? Well, then my neuroscientist brain comes in and says, well, that's how we learn. <laughs> you know, If you pay attention and you're expecting something to be rewarding and it's not as rewarding as expected, then we start to become disenchanted with that behavior. So, you know, shock of all shocks, pay attention and you can actually quit smoking without willpower because our, you know, it's, it's bringing that awareness in and helping people see that that's the case. Instead of going, oh, no, there's a craving, go, oh, what does this craving feel like in my body right now? right? And can I name it? Oh, is it tightness? Is it tension? That, oh, helps us turn toward the experience and tell me what feels better, a craving or curiosity? Right. Curiosity for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's a no-brainer. No-brainer. Okay. Let's say I am a guy who likes to come home at the end of the day and I'll sit in front of the TV on the couch. And at some point I'll feel like I need to have some ice cream. Mm -hmm. But instead of sitting in your favorite spot and eating your ice cream stand and use your non-dominant hand to eat the ice cream instead. And, and I don't think it was as, as neat as what you're describing, but I guess a way to force you to pay attention to what you were doing, right? Is that, that's basically it. Yeah, absolutely. So think of learning to eat, you know, I don't know if you remember teaching your daughter how to eat and how, you know, what the probability was that the spoon would actually get in her mouth, you know, and then that probability increased over time, right, as she learned how to eat, right? So when we take our dominant hand, we don't have to think about eating. But when we take our non-dominant hand, suddenly our probability goes down. <laughs> you know, we have to pay attention. Where's my mouth? <laughs> and what that so we could certainly do that, we could stand, we could use non-dominant hands. But what you're pointing to is, what this, what this all boils down to is pay attention. And so what I have people do is, you know, I say, well, go ahead and use your dominant hand, whatever. Don't, don't eat mindlessly in front of the television because you're not paying attention. But ask yourself this question, how little is enough? Like how many bites and, and see how much we actually need. And it's not that much to satisfy that, that craving, that urge. We could probably do a whole conversation just about social media and the addiction around that. Are, are, the, are the sort of habits slash addictions around social media, is, is that wanting to fit in? That, is, that, is that the primary driver, do you think, of why, why those become so entrenched? Well, there are multiple drivers that can unfortunately be brought together uh, to have social media be you know, addiction on steroids. So 
there's all the social aspect of things. You know, it's the fear of missing out. It's the, you know, wanting to uh, put your best face forward. And then you combine that with quantitative feedback. We know exactly where we stand, whether it's great, I got a ton of likes or wow, you know, everybody's ghosting me or, or whatever, the, whether, whatever the term is. And then you add on things like intermittent reinforcement, which is the most powerful type of learning. And that's just a fancy term for getting random rewards where, you know, somebody gets a, you know, they get a like and they don't know when they're going to get the next like. And then, bam, I got 50 likes, you know, and it's like dopamine fireworks in their brain, you know. So, yes, yeah, social media in a nutshell, you know, it's they they employ all of the behavioral neuroscientists to really tweak these things to make them extremely addictive. It seems like an unfair sort of fight almost. And I really find this interesting. And maybe maybe it's my own way of leaning into the curiosity part of this, because I don't know. I, I read that you dealt with significant anxiety yourself throughout medical school and you became curious about it. You leaned into it and your curiosity was helpful in this regard. Some of your story and what you're describing sounds familiar because, you know, I think I deal with some of this as well. And it's just, it's sort of anxiety. I talked to my wife about it and she says, stop being a worrywart. You're too anxious. Chill out, whatever. And I'm like, I'm not sure that's really helpful to me to hear that right now. <laughs> but, you know, so, you know that, that is another thing. Maybe that's not even a question. But, but the idea that I do something to, to break up this distress or whatever that I currently have, it, it just doesn't seem to work that that neatly, right? It, it doesn't. You know, I spent 10 years banging my head against the proverbial meditation while trying to meditate. <laughs> and it took that combination of me failing continuously at trying to meditate and then also bringing that together with what I was learning personally about my own mind and also my research where I was starting to see with some of our neuroimaging studies that, that awareness and that curiosity are the opposite of trying, of the opposite of getting caught up in our experience. So, you know, if I try to relieve stress, I'm just making more stress. If I try to get something done, it just adds extra wasted energy to the equation where instead I could follow my curiosity and say, oh, well, what's this like? Lean into the curiosity. I just find Dr. Brewer's research so fascinating. His approach is really different from how most people think about habits and their connection to anxiety. Be curious as to why you're doing something, the impact of what you're doing, and maybe that makes a difference. The real question now is how can we put that sort of research into practice? After the break, we'll hear from you. I see the tolls that it's taking. I know how it's making me feel, but I can't seem to shake it. And Dr. Brewer shares his tips for how we can all break bad habits. Welcome back to Chasing Life and more of my conversation with neuroscientist and psychiatrist Dr. Judson Brewer. So we asked listeners to share their bad habits for this episode so Dr. Brewer could offer us some expert advice. Our first message is from Austin, who lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Every time I go through a drive-thru now, I order a Coke, I order a Sprite, I order a Mountain Dew, a Mellow Yellow, whatever they've got, because for some reason, even though it makes me feel absolutely terrible, I get a soda. 
there's just something about it. Just the other day, I stepped on a scale and I had gained 30 pounds. 30 pounds in one year. And this is the most weight I have ever gained that quickly in my entire life. And I see the tolls that it's taking. I know how it's making me feel, but I can't seem to shake it. So what do you, what do you tell Austin? So pragmatically, what I would say to Austin is, you know, pay attention as you consume the soda, right? So if you're really jonesing for a, a soda, see if you can just start with a little bit and take each sip, one sip at a time and ask yourself, how does this really taste, right? What does it taste like? Is it satisfying? Do I feel content? Because there's this pleasure plateau that we all hit with any type of food. You know, we eat some and then it's pleasurable, especially if we're hungry or, you know, thirsty. And then that starts to plateau out and then we go off the cliff, (laughs) the cliff of despair because we just consumed a supersized soda, right? So here we can pay attention during how little is enough, just this sip, maybe just the next sip and find that plateau. And then we can also ask ourselves afterwards, if we've consumed the whole thing, how do I actually feel? Pay attention to it a little bit, uh, and it, it, it does seem to make a, a big difference. I'm, I'm, again, imagining this as you're talking about this, doctor. You know, like sometimes I'll, I'll drink a soda and I'll say, I, can, I feel like I can taste the chemicals yeah. in here. I don't want to drink it anymore. Um, I, I think that really makes a big difference. All right, here's another listener who is having a, a just a basic issue with their daily routine. Take a listen. My physical activity is mostly based on what I do throughout the day. Like when I go to work, I'm kind of running around because I work at a local coffee shop and doing stuff in that manner. Or I walk my dogs or I get exercised by doing yard work, but I definitely don't maintain like a workout routine and I don't go to the gym. Um, I don't really have any fitness goals. So I feel like that is definitely a bad habit. I picked up um, during COVID and haven't really um, seen myself out of yet. How do you uh, approach someone like her? Well, I think there are several aspects here. One is these societal you know, expectations that we should be doing X, Y, or Z. And certainly there's a lot of science around, you know, exercising a certain amount every day is healthy for us, Right. Yet, if we take the approach that I should exercise, you know, I should do this, I should do that. Well, that doesn't feel very good when we basically judge ourselves for not doing something. So we can actually flip the script on that. And my wife does is a great example of this where uh, it, when she's, you know, if it's in the winter in Massachusetts and it's cold outside and she's trying to decide whether to go for a run or not, you know, and, her, and she's like, wow, it's kind of cold. She remembers how it felt the day before to go for a run. And of course it feels great, right? She's like, and then she gets out the door and goes for a run. So here's a great example of really drawing on the benefits, the rewards of doing something and recalling that, right? That's what reward-based learning is all about. It's like remembering, oh, do I want to do this or this? If something's rewarding, we're going to repeat it. So we can actually focus on just remembering how rewarding something was. How did it feel? when I exercised, right? Instead of setting these goals, I should exercise for 30 minutes a day, or I should meditate for 30 minutes a day. No, what's it like when I'm curious and I pay attention for a little while? Oh, it feels pretty good. 
I think that is that is a key thing that I have I've learned today, and it it makes sense in so many ways. That idea of just uh, embracing the curiosity, paying real attention. You know, people always say, "Be mindful, be present," which I get that, but you're you're actually defining that in a way for me today that makes it real. I I mean, <laughs> be mindful and present, like clearing my mind, that is the last thing you should ask me to do. I cannot clear my mind, you know. But I think that point that you've made a few times I think is so critical. Let me let me have you uh let me have you listen to one more. So this person sort of seems to have kicked the habit by going cold turkey. And I want you to listen to what they dealt with and then how effective this may or may not be. My bad habit was the app TikTok. I downloaded it during right when the pandemic started and back in March of 2020. And over the course of the ensuing year, it just became very, very addicting. Anyone that's used the app knows it's got a really powerful algorithm. It hits you with some content that you just can't look away from. And it's so easy to swipe and swipe and swipe. And I would find myself sitting on it for hours. So about a, two months ago, I took a stand against the addiction to TikTok and deleted the app. And I'm much happier. Went cold turkey, and that was my bad habit. So what do you what do you think about that? I mean, first of all, is this likely is he likely to stick with this, do you think? I mean you could just you can just reinstall the app, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's too easy. Yeah, and they do that on purpose. They're like, Oh, you can you can delete this because we know you're gonna install it in forty eight seconds, you know, <laughs> when you're <laughs> so some people can quit cold turkey and it works for them. Not many people in the world are like that. The rest of us, that willpower approach is just, for most of us, is eventually, unfortunately, going to fail. If we do know how our minds work, then we can actually stick to it. And I think he touched on something really important where he said it felt really great not to be on it yeah. all the time. And so if he focuses on that piece and he knows, oh, this is how my brain works. If it's rewarding, I'm going to keep doing it. Then he can rely on that, on his own experience, where he can remember, oh, it feels great not to be wasting my time on this thing. And that's what leads to sustainable change. Once you recognize that you have a bad habit, that's when you can start to address it. Like Dr. Brewer says, you need to map out the habit loop. That means identify the trigger, identify the behavior, and identify the reward. And then you can find ways to intervene and redirect your behavior toward a healthier reward. A big thanks to all of our listeners who took the time to call in or email us. We love hearing from you. I know it isn't easy to reflect on bad habits, and I really appreciate you sharing. Now, if you're still feeling overwhelmed about tackling bad habits, it's okay, because change is a challenge. But with time, it does get easier. And if you're feeling stuck, Dr. Brewer said something else. He suggested a mindfulness exercise to get you started. It's called RAIN. That's an acronym, R-A-I-N. Which is recognize, allow or accept, investigate, and note what's happening. Here, we're looking to help people identify that urge to do something, whether it's smoke a cigarette or to eat some food or to even worry, you know, recognize that's that arm. So just noticing, oh, I'm, I'm starting to do this or I'm getting this urge to do this. That A is for allow. So often we resist, you know, oh, here's this craving and we try to push it away. Well, what we resist persists. So the idea is to allow it and even invite it in. So allow it to be there. 
Then that I stands for investigation. And this is all about bringing that attitude of curiosity in. And then that I slips right into noting, where we can note our physical sensations, we can note our emotions, we can note our thoughts from moment to moment to moment, and be able to notice, oh, these are sensations, I can be with them, they come and go, and I'm kind of good to go, as in I learn how to ride out that craving. So that's what that RAIN acronym is all about. Cravings will come and go, but it's how we respond to them that matters. Self-compassion is key here, really. Habits aren't going to change overnight. It's going to take time. And the same goes for building good habits. But using Dr. Brewer's tips, as I've already started to do, we can all work toward healthier and happier lives. Here's one example from my own life. I've been trying to build good habits by making them almost automated. So every night, I'll set out my workout clothes on the kitchen sink so that they are the first thing I see in the morning when I wake up. It's a little mental trick for me. It helps make the routine habitual. The easier you can make a habit, the more likely it is to stick. Sometimes you just need to give your mind and your brain a little break and just make it easier for the good habits to start to form. Maybe you're already on your way to starting some good habits, and we'd love to hear how that's going as well. So record your thoughts as a voice memo, email them to asksanjay at cnn.com, or give us a call at 470-396-0832 and leave a message. We might even include them on an upcoming episode of the podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Rachel Cohn, Jordan Gasparre, Audrey Horwitz, Paige Sutherland, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park, our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer, and special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.